Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. If you're a guest here today, my name is Mark. We're really glad that you're here. Our desire as a church is to be a Christ-centered church for all people, which translates means wherever you're at in your life, wherever you're at in your journey of faith, this is a good place for you. We're really glad that you're here. So as you just heard Amanda say, next week we're going to start a series, having just finished uh, the book of James, we're going to go to the book of 1 Peter. It's actually a letter that Peter wrote. And so this year at Easter, I thought it would be good to kind of get, get ready for the, the letter that Peter wrote to just better understand the man. Who is this guy? And look at Easter through Peter, who is one of Jesus' disciples' eyes. And so uh, we're going to talk about hope and how he found hope in Christ and how his hope was mistaken at times, how he lost hope as he was following Christ, and how hope was reborn in his life. Now, the subject of hope, I, I hope you agree, is like really, really important. Because here's what I'd like to say. People with hope can endure the unbearable. And people without hope can barely make it through the day. So you think about people with hope. And so um, those of you women who have given birth, that was uh, a really hard delivery. But man, you had the hope of holding your own flesh and blood, right? Yeah, you think about those of us who've gone through chemo and radiation with the hopes of we're, we're going to get through the other side of this cancer, right? You think about the hours, the grueling hours in the gym and working out so that you can make the team or compete for the medal or your championship or make it to the next level, right? For the hope, for the hope. We uh, see these guys and gals who are going to be doctors and they endure their sleepless nights of their residency for the hope, right? We study hard for the tests and the cert certification, right? For the hope of a bright future. But then flip it around. People without hope can barely make it through the stuff of everyday life. In his article, Dying of Despair, psychiatrist Aaron Cariati points to a number of long-term studies on the subject of suicide. Here are his conclusions. Over a 10-year span, it turns out that the one factor in the research that most strongly is predictive of suicide is not how sick the person is, not how many symptoms they have, not how much physical pain they're experiencing, not how rich or poor they are. The most dangerous factor is a person's sense of hopelessness. The person without hope is the likeliest candidate for suicide. We cannot live without hope. And so this Easter, 2018, I kind of want to catch up with you and you yourself and just ask the question, so how are you doing with this thing called hope? Is it growing? Is it waning? Are you hopeful? Or is there less of hope in your life? What are you hoping for this Easter what are the things that you're trusting in to have those hopes become true? Because, right, hope is not something that we have or we wouldn't have to hope for it. So what are we trusting in for these desires and expectations that we have in the future? So as you think about those, let's catch up with this guy, Pete. When we first meet him in Scripture, his name is Simon. That was his name given by his parents. But when Peter was, uh, when he met Jesus, Jesus changes his name to Peter. We don't know what Simon means, but we know what Peter means. It means rock. So he's like Rocky, like the movie guy Rocky. He's a man's man. He's a tough fisherman. He's a, from up north in Galilee, kind of talked funny, might have smelt like fish, because that was his deal, man. He did fish all the time. If we met him today, 
You know, he's this working blue-collar guy. He's got his Carhartt gear on. He's got his steel-toed shoes on, his boots on, right? And he carries a lunch bucket to the job site. That's that kind of guy. He was a little bit impulsive. No, actually, he was really impulsive. He was always talking before he thinking, excuse me, no, it was talking. He was always talking before he even thought about what he was going to say. You know, the joke about Peter was he was always taking one foot out of his mouth and putting the other one in because that was just the guy. But sometimes he actually got it really right. I'm going to tell you four stories. The first story is where he got it really, really right. It's where he meets Jesus and he has this new brimming life of hope and faith through this encounter with Christ. So his brother Andrew introduces him to Jesus, but the situation in Luke 5 is he actually gets to meet him now. He's heard about him, and now he meets him. He's been out fishing all night with his partners, Andrew, his brother, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who had become followers of Jesus. And they'd fished all night, and they didn't get a thing, like nada, nothing. And they're cleaning their nets out on the shore there, the Sea of Galilee, in a town called Capernaum, which is kind of Jesus' headquarter town. And Jesus shows up in a crowd around him. And Jesus asked Peter, hey, Pete, would it be okay if I just used your boat for a little bit? Could you just row me out a little way so I could teach to the people? He said, I'd be glad to do that. So just picture, you got the crowd here on the shore, and you got Jesus sitting in the front of the boat, and Peter kind of steadying the boat behind him. And Jesus is just amazing teacher. And Peter's hearing the whole thing. He finishes teaching. The crowd disperses. And Peter uh, hears Jesus say, hey, Pete, why don't we just go out into some deeper waters and I'll let you fish a little bit. Why don't you throw your nets down? Pete's going, well, that's kind of interesting because it's not a great time of the day to go fishing. And by the way, I forget if I told you, but we were out all night and didn't catch anything. And I didn't know you were like a fishing guide guy. I thought you were a good teacher guy. But hey, you're really a good teacher. Maybe you know something I don't. So he goes to the deep waters. He throws down his nets. And the next thing he knows, this net is so heavy and so full of fish that he calls his partners, James and John, to get their boat out there. And by the time they've pulled all the fish in, both of their boats are full of fish and they're starting to sink. And here's where we pick up the story, Luke chapter 5. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. It wasn't like, Wow, this is awesome. Could you fish with us more often? No, he knew that this wasn't any person. This was divine. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish. It was miraculous. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. So Peter falls at his knees, and he worships him, right? Jesus said, I'm going to make you a fisherman. Are you in for it? You want to follow me? I'll make you a fisher of people. He says, yeah, I'm in for it. And immediately he leaves it all, his identity, his security, a lot of cash in those two boats. I mean, that's a lot of fish. And he walks away from it all to follow Jesus and join him in his mission. And so he's got this early faith that's centered on Christ. He understands he's not just any man. There is something about his encounter with Christ where he better understood himself. I wonder if we've hung around Jesus long enough to get the measure of the man, Jesus. 
and if we've ever measured ourselves up against him. If you've never done that, there's several books in the Bible that are kind of like portraits of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. I'd, I'd point you to Mark's Gospel, not because that's my name, but because it's the shortest. It's the shortest. And just look at this person and take a measurement of this man and your life in relationship to him. So there's this great beginning, great faith. He is brimming with hope, high hopes. Hope has been born. But now we come to uh, hope that is mistaken. And we come to this great story where Peter starts so great with this confession and then really bombs right after that. Here we find out that hope's actually a little trickier than we might think. So the story is in Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Son of Man is a title he grabs from the Old Testament prophet Daniel to apply to himself. Who are, who are people saying that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. This is Jesus' cousin who was kind of getting people ready in that day for Jesus. Others said Elijah, an Old Testament prophet, long gone Still others, Jeremiah, another one of the long-gone dead prophets, or one of the prophets. <coughs> but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Always the first to speak. Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So that word Messiah is the same word for Christ. So Jesus Christ is not his first and last name. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. Christ Messiah means anointed one. You're the long-promised Savior of God's people that we've been waiting for. You are the Messiah, not just the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. No person's told you about this, but my Father in heaven. Great, 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 great confession. I know who you are. You're not just a great teacher, and you're certainly not just another prophet in the line of the prophets. You are the promised Savior, the Son of the living God. Like, this is awesome. And he's blessed by Jesus. And then notice what happens is his hope and faith in Jesus, especially the hope part of it, takes a little turn. Because he's really into Jesus, but he's not so into where Jesus is going and his plans. And notice the difference here as we continue just a few verses after where we left off. Verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This will never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Whoa. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So you get what's happening. He knows who Jesus is. He, he says, you are the, the Messiah, the promised Savior, the Son of the living God. Just a powerful confession, profession. You're my Savior. I believe that. 
But then when Jesus is talking about what he's got to do, it's like this is not what his idea was of a savior. And there's this collision of expectation here. And so he pulls him aside and says, that can't be true. And that must never happen. And I personally am not going to let it happen. And the next thing he knows is what? He's referenced not as the rock, but as Satan. And his knees had to buckle. Because here's the deal. He, he's got the right person. He accepts the person. But he wants nothing to do with the plan, right? Nothing. No way. And I just wonder if we could be guilty of the same thing. Yeah, I know, Jesus, you're my Savior. But I kind of like you to be this kind of Savior and I kind of like you to kind of hook up to my plans. I'm not really excited about your plans, this idea of God using your sufferings on the cross to bring this place to where it needs to go in a right relationship with God. So I'm not really excited about that plan. I'd, I'd rather you be my personal savior and could you be a little bit like my personal genie where I just kind of, you know, wish for these things? I wonder if we think that somehow if we claim Christ as our Savior, we have the right then to control Christ. I wonder if our posture matches our profession. It's a a tricky thing how he's got the right faith in the right person, but his hopes now are in the God of his making his idea of what would be best. I got a better idea, Jesus. Yeah, we've never come up with stuff like that. That was brilliant, Peter. We've never thought about that. Of course we do. So there's a third story. It's not surprising that after his hope was mistaken that he actually ends up losing all hope. And this is the story that begins on the night of the Last Supper. So that's Thursday night. Jesus is celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room. And Jesus, during the meal, says, hey, one of you is going to betray me. And isn't it wild? Because, you know, I was expecting that they they had an early jump on Judas. And at that point, I'm expecting the gospel writers to say, and when Jesus said that, all of the 11 in unison said, and it's Judas, isn't it? Nobody said that. They all said, is it me? Is it me? Is it me? It's not me, is it, Jesus? And then he said, not only will one of you betray me, but what does he say? All of you are going to desert me. So this is now where we meet Peter in all of his, what we would expect, fisherman Galilean bravado. Matthew 26, verse 32. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. So fast forward. They finish the meal. They've sung a hymn. They go out. Jesus takes some of the disciples up the hill on the Mount of Galilee, uh, uh, on the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane where he prays and he asks them to pray with him in his greatest hour of need, where he's pleading with the Father for a plan B. Because the agony of the cross 
is real before him. Not the physical agony, the spiritual agony where he would take on the sin of this whole world, past, present, and future, and have it all be absorbed on him, and he'd be separated from the Father. And in this greatest hour of need, he says, come on, Pete, you pray for me. I'm going to go over here, but you pray for me. He falls asleep. Jesus comes back. Come on, guys, wake up. I need you to pray. They fall asleep a second time. Come on, guys, wake up. And they fall asleep a third time. Finally, after the third time of falling asleep, Jesus says, time to go. And he goes, and that's where he runs into Judas, who's already sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and the religious establishment, the leadership with their thugs, their soldiers, their guards, under the cloak of darkness, because if they tried this in Jerusalem in broad daylight, there'd have been a full-fledged riot. But, but Judas knew exactly where he would be, and he leads him to him, and so there's this confrontation. And what happens to Pete? He still doesn't get the plan. I must go to Jerusalem where I will suffer and I must be killed so that I can rise again on the third day. Peter's going, I want none of that. These guys want to take my Jesus. I'm, I'm making good on my promise. And he grabs his sword and he's ready to lop someone's head off, but he misses Malchus's head. And I'm sure he was aiming for his head, not his ear. And he just grazes the side of his head and he lops off his ear. Jesus picks up his ear and the scriptures say, miraculously just reattached it. And then Jesus says, Pete, do not get off and put your sword away. And they take Jesus away. They bind, they bind his arms and, and he, he goes. And all the disciples that were with Jesus deserted him. But Pete, he was lurking in the shadows, following at a distance so he could slip in under the cloak of darkness around Caiaphas's courtyard where there was a fire where some of the servants and other people were there while Jesus was in Caiaphas, the high priest's house, going through this mock trial kangaroo bogus thing that was going on. And there's Peter, and we pick up the story of what happened. Matthew 26, 69, now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. Man, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. You're a Galilean from up north. Sounds like a Canadian. We can tell. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you'll disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. So put those... Two stories together, come on. So here's Peter. He's ready to take on all of these temple guards, right? This huge act of bravado. I'll fight for you, Jesus. And then he won't acknowledge that he even knows him under this kind of dark canopy of the night sky with the low flickering flames of the fire to a couple of servant girls. And notice, when he really wants to make the point that he knows nothing about Jesus, he has nothing to do with Jesus, he dis disassociates himself through language, specifically cursing. Church, we live in a very interesting day 
where it is just so common for people to have coarse language. And it's become our language, and we don't think it's a big deal. Let's just note this. When the pressure was on, and he wanted to make it clear, I have nothing to do with Jesus, he chose that kind of language. So what happened when the rooster crowed? Luke tells us, this is amazing. Luke tells us that there was a vantage point visually between where Peter was in the courtyard and where Jesus was in Caiaphas's house, whether it was through a window or a doorway, we don't know. All we know is Luke says, their eyes met. Ugh. And when Peter saw Jesus' gaze, trust me, it wasn't an angry gaze. It was, oh man, we just talked about this. I've been praying for you, dude. And he runs out of the courtyard. And it says he wept bitterly. That word bitter speaks of a violent, uncontrolled, full of despair man. And when hope was ripped from his heart, it wasn't because of what Jesus was going through. It had everything to do with his failure. And that failure to just acknowledge that he knew Jesus to a couple of servant girls. That failure to, to not make good on his promise, if I have to die for you, I'll never desert you. That's what did him in. And it actually knocked him out of the game of following Jesus and his mission of making disciples, fishing for people. And like, how many times have I read this story and I didn't get it until this last week of going... You know what the surprise is? Is that Peter going through Easter didn't fix it. I mean, you think if anything would have just jolted him out of his deep despair, it would have been experiencing Easter, and he did. He's like the first guy to stick his head in the empty tomb. He saw Jesus on Easter night. He touched his hands. He saw him a week later with Thomas, but that didn't lift him from his funk and despair. And we go, how could it not? I want to talk about it, but let me just make a connection to your life. Because there's a whole bunch of us, like Peter, go, I, I believe who Jesus is. He's the Christ, the son of the living God. I, I, I'm following him. I believe that he lived a perfect life to die on the cross, the perfect sacrifice, and that he died, that he rose again on the third day. But man, I, I've got a lot of hopelessness and despair in my life, and I am really stuck over some past failures, and it's taken me out of the game. That's exactly where we're at. And so we, we need to catch up. We need to catch up with what's going on here. And it gets us to that fourth story, which is where hope is reborn. The scene is another campfire, not the one in the courtyard, this one on the beach. Pete decided that he's going to go back to fishing. And he asks his buddies, anybody want to go with me? Now remember, he left everything to follow Jesus to become a fisher of people to join Jesus' mission, and now his despair and his failure has taken him out of the game, and it's business as usual. He's back to what he was comfortable doing before. He's not following Jesus, not in the game of making disciples. So he's out all night, and he and Andrew and James and John, they didn't catch anything. That sounds familiar. It's the next morning. The Scripture tells us Jesus had a campfire going. He was grilling some fish. 
for a short lunch, there's a short breakfast. They don't know it's Jesus. Jesus calls out to them, hey guys, how's the fishing? Terrible. We didn't catch a thing. So why don't you throw your nets on the other side of the boat? And they do. And there's like this miraculous, huge 153 big fish that they pull up into their boat. And I'm pretty sure it's John. He was always a little sharper than Pete. And uh, John's going, wait a minute, I've lived this movie. I've seen this movie. Fishing all night, not catching anything. Some guy says, throw it on the other side after we haven't caught anything. And all of a sudden, this miraculous catch. Could it be? Could it be? Guys, I think that's Jesus. The words aren't out of his mouth. And Peter has hopped over the the bow of the boat, and he's swimming to shore, and there's Jesus, and he fixes them all breakfast, takes some of the fresh fish with the fish he already had, and he feeds them all. And then he sits down, and he has this conversation that we may need to have right now today with Jesus. This is the conversation that answers the question, how could Peter, this big guy, who wimped out in the courtyard to a couple of servant girls, then become the guy who stands in broad daylight in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost and preaches to the people about Jesus being the promised Savior who you crucified and you're responsible for it and you better get right with God. And 3,000 people say, what must we do to be saved? And he says, you got to repent and turn to God, and you got to get baptized by the Holy Spirit and put your faith in Christ, and they did. And you go, how in the world is that the same guy? It's this breakfast conversation. It's this breakfast conversation. John 21, verse 14 This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than the other disciples? Maybe, but more likely what he'd gone back to. (laughs) The boat, the fishing, his identity, his security, his livelihood, the guys. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. I love you more than fish. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time. Oh, yeah, he did. Because remember how many times he denied him. Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, this is a prophecy of what was going to happen. You will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Church history, tradition, we don't know this. But the tradition is that, Jesus, that Peter was crucified, that his hands were spread, and that he didn't count himself worthy to be crucified in the same posture as Christ, so he's crucified upside down. But let's go back to this whole thing about how his hope was reborn. And for the record, let's say clearly, it wasn't by Peter saying, I'm going to do better, I'm going to do better, I'm going to try harder. And it wasn't because Jesus said, okay, so let me tell you about the fish, Pete. The reason there's 153 fish is, is you've really blown it big time. And so what I need you to do is do something big for me. Those fish 
represent people. Remember, fishers of men, fishers of people. Okay, so I want you to go get 153 converts. When you get them, bring them to me. I'll check them out. And if it's true, you got 153 followers of me, then we're all good. But you really blew it big time, and you got some big time work to do. That's not how hope was reborn. Hope was reborn when Jesus helped him understand that though his faith was in the right place, his hope got disconnected to Christ and somehow it got put on himself that he was going to live the life, that he was going to do the work, that he was going to put together the portfolio that would please God and put him in a position of prominence and privilege, that he was going to do it. And when he couldn't just do it to a couple of servant girls and a few people around a campfire, he was devastated because his hopes were pinned on himself. And Jesus said, we, we got to fix this. We got to talk. Let me suggest that having a false hope is as deadly as having no hope. And here's the deal. We all got hopes. But it's not just what are we hoping for, but what are we hoping in that would bring that dream into reality? A false hope is just as deadly. There's this guy. He was a surgeon in the army. Major Harold Kushner. He was captured by the Viet Cong. He was in captivity for five years. He tells the story of this young Marine, 24 years old, who makes a deal with his captors. You do everything we ask you to do, and then we'll let you go. And so, man, he was the model prisoner. He did everything they asked him to do. He became the leader of the camp. And then one day, it hit him. They're not going to let me go. They're not going to let me go. This is just a bunch of lies. And this is what Kushner writes about. When the full realization of this took hold for this young Marine, here's the word he used. He became a zombie. He refused to do all the work, and he rejected all offers of food and encouragement. He simply lay on his cot, sucking his thumb. In a matter of weeks, he was dead. The cause of his death, in a word, hopelessness. But let's be more clear here. It was a hopelessness. It was the backside of a false hope. And every false hope has that waiting for us. So when Jesus asked him the three questions, do you love me? It wasn't because Jesus wasn't sure. This is for Peter. This is for Peter. I don't know if you noticed that after Peter affirmed his love each time, he said, well, then, then get back to work, man. If you're following me, you're fishing for me. And if you're fishing for me, you're catching for me. And that means these people need to be taken care of like a shepherd his sheep. Get, get back to doing the work. Guys, there's, there's something really important here. He's saying, I love you. I love you. And Jesus said, that's great. Now show it. How do we show our love for Christ? We take care of his sheep. We're in the game with him. We're vested in his mission. We're following him. We're deluded if, we're th- if we think we can do this. Man, I love Jesus. I know who he is. I'm good with Jesus. Jesus and I are good, but I don't, want, I don't have anything to do with the church. I mean, the church is so messed up anyways, and I'm just doing my own thing. And I, that, Jesus said, wait a minute. You love me? Then get back in the game. All of you in the game for me. So a couple questions as we wrap it up. 
Has failure, your failure, knocked you out of the game? Are you stuck because you can't get through the guilt and shame of the past? Is anyone guilty of having a false hope, false hopes right now? Anybody here longing to move from knowing I'm forgiven to being freed of the guilt and shame that I still feel and I can't figure out why those two can't work out in my own life? Let me just say, for those of you who aren't followers of Christ right now, maybe you're considering it, maybe you're really clear, you're just here with family, friends, you know, I don't need this. I'd really like you to wrestle today, this week, with this question, what do you do with guilt? In your worldview, in your construct, how are you working it out? What do you do with guilt? Because Christianity and the gospel and Jesus Christ offers us freedom from that, not just forgiveness from our past mistakes. Anyone need to meet Jesus for breakfast to have a clarifying question, a, a conversation, where we understand anew that, yes, we're sinners, but Jesus died on the cross for that, and he forgives us, and he frees us from that. And as long as our hope is in Christ, we can move forward with freedom and joy and peace. And as long as our hope is in our performance and doing the good work, we're going to continually be devastated. Do you need that breakfast conversation? Jesus has given us a miracle far greater than two boatloads of fish, the cross and the empty tomb. I encourage you to go back to where Peter started, that first catch of fish where he acknowledged, God, you're God, and I'm not. I'm messed up. I'm a sinner. And that you acknowledge what happened at that second campfire, that second great camp uh, catch of fish where Peter realized, okay, what you did on the cross for me is enough. You've forgiven me and you've freed me. So follow him. He knows who you are. He's calling you. Follow him. Join him again if your past failures knocked you out of the game and find new life and a living hope. Here's how Peter describes it in his opening words to his letter. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When, when it says, in his great mercy, you know what mercy is? We didn't get what we deserved. We deserved to die for our rebellion and sin against God and each other. In his great mercy, Jesus took on the punishment that we deserved. And he's given us new birth, new life, more than a second chance, that gives us a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. So, Father God, I pray that you'd have mercy on us as we find ourselves wrestling with your call in our lives, maybe for those of us who've never trusted you, we keep pushing you away. Have mercy on us. Have mercy on our fumblings and misplaced hopes. Have mercy as we wallow in despair over past failures, still thinking we can be our own savior. Have mercy on us when in our pride we would tell you who you ought to be and what you ought to do. Oh, Lord, even as we hear your word today through your spirit, would you grant us 
faith to believe for the first time again to follow you, to trust you into this living hope that holds firm like an anchor to the soul in the storms of our lives until you bring that better day when we can trade in hope because all of our wildest dreams and then some will be ours as every promise is fulfilled by your son. Praise be to you, Father God, our merciful Father. Praise be to you, King Jesus, who willingly suffered. Praise be to you, Holy Spirit, our comforter, our strength. In Christ's name we pray, amen.